0: My name is Ed Goldberg. Welcome to Author, Author, an occasional series of conversations with authors touring through Portland for whom I have reached by phone. My name is Ed Goldberg, and I have the pleasure of speaking with Jarrett Kobach. Jarrett, welcome to All Classical. Welcome to Portland.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Although you've been to Portland before, but not for a while. Yeah, not
1: for years and years at this point.
0: Okay. The title of your book is Only Americans Burn in Hell. Your name is Jarrett Kovek, spelled T K O I'll spell that again later on. And it's published by We Heard You Like Books. I don't know this. Tell us, where can, you, where can we get your book? You can get it, well,
1: it's at Powell's. Okay. Yeah. Also, the dreaded Amazon.com. <laughs> you yeah. Know, if you want to destroy local retail.
0: Yeah, I have mixed feelings about Amazon. Let's put yeah. it that way. Yeah. All the Americans Burn in Hell. Now, when I read this book, two things kind of occurred to me. Mm. One was a Swiftian satire. Right. right? Is that a a relatively accurate description? Yeah,
1: I'd take Swift. Yeah, okay. I'll I'll Uh, take uh, Swift.
0: Okay, yeah. The other thing was a book called The Magic Christian by Terry Southern, which is also a scathing denunciation of modern culture. Of course, modern in those days being like 1962. right? But a lot of things haven't changed much. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Alas. Okay, you also are a winner of the coveted Bad Sex and Fiction Award.
1: Shortlisted, actually. I haven't won <laughs> you didn't it. I didn't re- win no, I'm the, sorry. <laughs> no, I mean, it's the only thing in my life that I've ever actually wanted to win. and But I knew that I wouldn't, unfortunately, when, when I saw what they nominated. But yeah, I did a book called The Future Won't Be Long, which came out in 2017 and somehow ended up being shortlisted for ba- the Bad Sex and Fiction Prize, which was... An unfair shortlisting, only in that the passage that they nominated wasn't actually describing sex. Like, and it was intentionally absurd, whereas everything else that they had nominated was someone trying to write a kind of literary metaphor heavy sex. And this was like a it was strange character trying to describe sex, but not actually sex. But I loved it. I thought it was the greatest. Yeah. Yeah. I, would, I would take
0: that, yes. Yeah. In fact, I would, I would write a scene just to try to get that nomination yeah. if I could. Okay, one thing that we share, and I'm not trying to grease you up here, is a, a, no patience. I have no patience anymore with literary novels. Oh, yeah. I am so tired of watching people fly up their own metaphorical navel and just trying to impress us with how poetically they can describe nothing. hmm that when I read your book, I said, "Okay, well, this guy's at least on one level a kindred spirit."
1: Yeah, I I hate literary fiction. Unfortunately, there's not exactly another category to put me into genre know? fiction. But what's the genre? You know, like this satire. Is satire, you know, humorous fiction. Yeah. I don't know, but I unfortunately that's sort of where I have to be more or less is in literary fiction. But I I cannot stand. That genre of writing, and it is a genre,
0: mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah.
1: It's a construction of the about. I don't know the last forty years. There was a point where fiction was just fiction, you know, and then someone got the idea to put an adjective in front of it, and that's sort of where serious fiction has has gone. But like all genres, it has its conventions, and if you are not following those conventions, you, you get yourself in a little bit of a problem mm-hmm. with the publishing industry.
0: It used to be that popular fiction and, and literary fiction were in fact the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. You're reading yeah. Dickens or you're reading Jane Austen. Right. Yeah. yeah, It's both, right? Yeah. Okay. When I read a book, whether it's nonfiction, biography, mm. or a novel, I usually take extensive notes. I have pages and pages of notes that I try to distill to a couple of pages so I can do an intelligent review. Right. But it occurred to me as I was reading my extensive notes for this rather slender book, that you really only have a few themes and a, a, a small narrative in this thing. And I don't say that pejoratively. It's just that it became quite obvious after a while that, that one of your themes is thank you for your honesty. Right. Yeah. Tell us about thank you for your honesty.
1: <laughs> thank you for your honesty is something that people say to you when they mean the exact opposite. No one gets thanked for their honesty because the person thanking them really appreciates their honesty. You only get thanked for it when you've said something that the person has taken exception to. And this happened to me where I got this alumni email because I went to NYU for them asking for money. And I sent back this really snotty email being like, you're not getting money. And the guy who was begging for money wrote back, you know, thank you for your honesty and your candor. And I was like, could you imagine... I'm, You know, like, what an aggrieved thing to say. And then it became kind of funny, right? Because mm-hmm. when people are thanking you, you probably have been honest.
0: Meanwhile, he's showing an email around the office saying, look what the schmuck yeah, wrote. The exactly. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. The other thing is the cash horizon. Now, I really got a kick out of yeah. the cash horizon because... It distills a large part of what the United States has become in a very useful phrase. Right. Tell us about the Cash Horizon. Cash
1: Horizon is just a comic device in the novel to suggest that there is a point where people make so much money that they stop being human or they become superhuman, actually, is is the best way of describing it. And when you you spend a lot of time around around really rich people and it's a little bit... Like hanging out with superheroes, right? Like these are people who do not have the same concerns as everyone else. And it's a so in the book, it's called The Cash Horizon, the moment where you make so much money that you no longer are human. And this is just a way of satirizing the whole thing, you know, of really sort of finding a way to talk about it without without being envious, mm-hmm. you know? Like I always try to talk down to my betters. That that's that's what the book is al- is always about like trying to find this way where if you read some of the criticism of someone like Steve Jobs, right? Like if you'd read some of these profile pieces when he was still alive where there were where people were like, "Oh, well, Steve Jobs, blah blah blah. You know, he's done these terrible things to his employees, but you could always tell the person writing those profile pieces, just by virtue of being in the position to write a profile piece of Steve Jobs, wanted to at least work for Steve Jobs,
0: wanted at, to be, or Steve
1: wanted Job. to be Steve Jobs. Yeah. I, I don't want to be any of this. I, I, this is me. You know, these books are about just sort of shouting down at people who never get shouted down at, like the people past the cast at cash horizon.
0: Yeah, I always wonder when the everyday struggle of life is no longer valid in your life is no longer a thing that you have to worry about the rent or, right. or or getting sick or getting a new car what you know what kind of change does it make in your biology what kind of changes make in your mental state does it actual cause actually cause changes in your brain chemistry yeah, yeah and I'll never achieve this you understand but right. I do like to think about it <laughs> okay I, I the plot, such as it is, revolves around a woman named Celia, who is yeah. an immortal, and uh, she is the undying queen of fairyland. Right. It also involves her daughter, Fern. We'll talk about her in a little bit. Well, okay, let's start with Celia and, and her, where she comes from, who she knows, and maybe get into a little bit to uh, Tom Lincoln and the fairy knight. Yeah,
1: I mean, I think the easiest way in is probably Tom Lincoln. I, when my The last book that I published failed miserably and i knew in about a week that it had not it was not going to work so i decided that i would do a new that i should just start working on a new book immediately i had also come to the conclusion that the vast majority of people in the country don't want to read anything except stories about supernatural creatures so it's like all right i will do a fantasy novel but i didn't actually want to create my own characters, mostly because I'm lazy. (laughs) So I started digging around looking for fantasy characters that were in the public domain that no one had used. And one of them, or several of them, come from this book that I found, this 1599 piece of Elizabethan pulp fiction called A Most Pleasant History of Tom Lincoln. And in this book, which is about king arthur's bastard son who goes on a journey throughout the world he goes to a place called fairyland and fairyland is this island where it's ruled by a queen named celia and there are no men on the island they've all been kicked out after this war involving celia's father and i just realized like this is something i can steal this is something i can use and then in the context of my book what it's really about is that character coming to los angeles in 2017
0: the year of the forward worm yeah exactly
1: yeah Yeah. coming to los angeles to try and find her wayward daughter but it's also just a way of having this completely unreal character bash up against the world that we're in you know like trump's america Mm -hmm. and and sort of navigate it one way or the other
0: you have several different ways of describing what year we're in. Yeah. One is the the normal, what we considered 2019 AD. Or right. 2017 is very important in the book. But the uh, there were a couple of others either. Where did you get those from?
1: Oh, yeah. Each year has its... the. I had this idea that Fairyland wouldn't actually... Why would it adhere to any calendar we know? So each year is like... The year of the something-something, and it tends to be adjective noun. Mm -hmm. I think one of them is the year of the misplaced butter. Most (laughs) of them are completely just literally making it up on the spot. Furward Worm actually is out of Shakespeare. I can't remember which play. Maybe Macbeth. Mm
0: -hmm. And Furward, I I had to look it up. It means kind of cranky. And yeah, Yeah. somebody somebody who's easily irritated. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. (laughs) <laughs> There's a lot of people in this book that are easily irritated. Yeah. Yeah. Fern is Celia's daughter, but Fern also has, what do I want to say, power influence over life on Fairyland, even when she's not there, or maybe especially when she's right. not there. Okay. Can you describe her influence on the island?
1: Yeah, she's a character where, for whatever reason, maybe because she's King Arthur's granddaughter, maybe because she's the first child born on Fairyland in a really long time, Her mood directly influences what's going on on Fairyland. So if she's happy, the island's great. If she's in a bad mood, the island's a disaster. And the entire, you know, very thin plot of this book (laughs) is based around the idea that if she leaves Fairyland for too long, suddenly everyone on the island has to see what life is actually like. Like, with all of their illusions and all of the things that we do to sort of prop ourselves up and get through the day completely removed. And so she's seeing everyone on Fairyland has to see life with like 2020 20 vision and life is brutal. So when she disappears for too long in 2017, her that's when Celia has to go and grab her or try to find her in Los Angeles. Okay.
0: So, Sia so leaves the island in the company of Rose Byrne. Yes. Rose Byrne is, uh, I don't know if she was my favorite character, but she was way up yeah. there. Yeah. Tell us about Rose Byrne. Yeah,
1: she's a murderous serial killer and the employee, <laughs> of, employee of the Queen. I mean, her name is take is uh, stolen from a pretty good actress named, I know. Rose, yeah, named yeah. Rose Byrne, who has nothing to, <laughs> to do with no, it, no commonality at all, but I was trying to think of a name to just give this completely thoroughly unpleasant character. And I well, that seems reasonable yeah. enough. And it's vaguely Celtic sounding. It uh, is. Um, yeah, but so she goes around and she kills a lot. And, you know, it's hopefully it's a way of dealing with violence in something that's a little more honest than how violence is usually dealt with in literature or television, where it's just like this kind of horrific force that then flattens everything in its wake
0: now she's not only just protective of celia Uh but she's also she she's a bit aggressive and hostile in her in her own way
1: yeah yeah she Uh, she's a serial killer hrh yes my greatest creation do you think yeah
0: okay when i have this is the first book of yours that i've read but hrh is a kind of distillation of almost every evil impulse that that occur in this book uh, is that stating it too uh, too strongly
1: yeah it, he, hrh is an acronym for his royal highness it's a character who is a member of the saudi royal family and actually it's a that character appeared first in i hate the internet but i didn't have the joke right the joke in i hate the internet was just like he was someone's boss and he kept bringing This person to just like do a bunch of drugs and go to whorehouses and it like that joke didn't work because what's the punchline right at some point when i started writing this book i realized that that joke how to finish that joke which is by night this is a deeply psychopathic character who traverses the byways of the world doing horrible things to people but by day He's a neoliberal philanthropist. So every opinion he has is essentially an opinion that I share, right? So like he believes the same things politically that I believe, but he's using this as a cloak for who he actually is.
0: Gee, where have we seen that before? Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think I think it's a really common thing. It's It's one of these problems of being someone who's – liberal or on the left in the U S which is the rhetoric that you believe or the things that you believe. I should back that up the way, the things that you believe also can function as like a kind of corporate rhetoric to hide, to hide truly terrible business practices or truly terrible people. And so this character is the Saudi Prince who goes through the world, giving money to causes that are totally worthy and investing in things and saying all the right things. and then by night is this complete horrific monster. And that's actually how he functions in the book. He functions in the uh, like a monster in a horror film where like you don't see them in every scene unless it's Nightmare on Elm Street. Mm-hmm. But most in most scenes, the in a horror film, the monster is not present, right? They only show up three or four times. It's like, oh, that's the greatest thing ever. Those are the moments you you wait for. And yeah, so he tortures people and does all kinds of horrible things that are probably too difficult to explain.
0: He has a great sense of humor, though.
1: Yeah, and he has a, he's a very, very funny character who's absolutely repellent, which is what I think when you're doing this stuff... You really kind of want right like if you have a character who's just totally repugnant no one cares right it just is a thing where it's like well that's not that good but if you can give that character a bunch of virtues suddenly that's a complexity suddenly that's the kinds of thing that is much closer to what life actually is
0: Reminds me of a description I read of somebody once written by the guy who used to do the obituaries for the New York Times Mm. before he died. And he described someone as a hardcore conservative adept at throwing liberal confetti. (laughs) Isn't that wonderful? I mean, that's
1: amazing. Who wrote his obituary?
0: Uh, I don't remember. It's it's a long time ago. It's a long time ago. The title of the book that we're talking about is Only Americans Burn in Hell. I'm speaking with Jarrett Kobeck, and the book is published by We Heard You Like Books, which I find very amusing in in and of itself. Celie goes looking for Fern, and she's following what you call the saliva thread, uh, which is uh, kind of disgusting, but tell us really what you mean by that.
1: (laughs) So it's this idea that I have this friend, this Friend who's an artist and writer, William E. Jones, who lives in Los Angeles. And the thing that he said to me before I started working on this book is that he thinks the supernatural in fiction is just a shorthand around storytelling. And I thought about that a lot. And I was like, he's totally right. And I will just self consciously use this as much as possible. So the book is very open. About the fact that whenever the supernatural enters in, it's just shorthand. It's just a way of getting from point A to point B. And then quite literally, at some point, they start casting these spells to get to various locations. And they work exactly like smartphone navigation, but it's visible as like, this tendril of light that snakes through the streets and looks a little bit like saliva, saliva like a, <laughs> a, a trail of saliva. Yeah. And that's how people follow it. But, yeah, I mean, that's the thing with the book. It's always an attempt at, like, trying to... The supernatural is in it. It's a fantasy novel, but it's all about subverting any of the expectations of how that stuff actually generally functions when people are writing it
0: okay now when you're not writing about celia and hrh and all that stuff you come into the book quite a lot yeah some or a persona of of yeah, comes into the book. yeah a fictitious
1: Jarrett kobach uh, yeah
0: really okay if you say so i'm in a yeah. hey i believe everything you say because you've never lied to me before yeah. but the thing that i relate to in this is your disdain for the publishing industry oh, among yeah. other things. Yeah, for example, you you talk about Penguin Random House and I used to write for Berkeley Books, which is a division of oh, Penguin yeah. Putnam. Yeah, yeah. They screwed me, basically. Oh, yeah? Yeah, and uh, someday we'll talk about it over a drink, but it occurred to me that my my writing career mm-hmm. would probably have been better and longer if I'd had more support from Penguin Putnam. Right, right. Berkeley books and I realized that the advance they'd given me was paperclip money it's you know it's what they spend every year on right. on uh, pencils and erasers you know and because they don't care because if I'm not Stephen King they don't care mm-hmm. did you did you have the same
1: yeah like i mentioned a little bit earlier my last book was a total disaster and that was a book called the future won't be long that was published by viking which is used to be its own press and then became sort of part of a penguin merger where it had almost equal weight with penguin and now is just an imprint of penguin random house it was a really difficult moment when the book came out and some of the fault was mine maybe but a lot of the fault was on their end like i didn't really get a i really didn't get to choose the title the cover, I really was not very happy with at all. And it was just like this blue mess. I mean, it was the color of boredom, right? <laughs> um, and they did not have a marketing plan. You know, their marketing plan was, let's get the New York Times to review the book. And that when that didn't happen, there was no backup. And they were so not paying attention to anything else that a very good review Ran in the Wall Street Journal and no one kn- knew until someone came up to me at an event. I was like, Oh, I saw the review in the Wall Street Journal. It's like, What review? Because I had no idea. But so in the book, it occurred to me that the single funniest thing that could have happened, because I, I mean, the backstory to that too is like, This is a kind of career death. Like, what happened to me, it's very hard to imagine given how much money they had given me for that book, because it was on the, 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 uh, the tale of the success of I hate the internet, given how much money they had given, given how badly the book failed, it was very, very hard to imagine going back to the five major publishers. And there's five publishers in America that control about 95% of the the pie. And then the other 5% is divided. It's like, people fighting over free milk right it occurred to me well i'm never being let back in the club maybe i should just announce everyone because that's a strategy yes well it's like i didn't you didn't dump me i dumped you there you go and then it became it actually started to become a little bit more interesting because i started thinking about the fact that of these five publishers amongst these five publishers Every single one of these publishers has some misdeed in its corporate background, right? Like Penguin is owned by Bertelsmann, which is a German company that spent a lot of World War II collaborating with the Nazis using Jewish Jewish slave labor and printing Nazi propaganda. It's like we think of Penguin and we imagine this sort of storied English company, but that's not what Penguin is. You know, Penguin is now just property of this other company. And to be fair to Bertelsmann, they did apologize. They did put together a giant report 70 years later and release it. But Hachette was owned by Lagarde, who ran weapons. Like, that was that company's major money. It manufactured and ran weapons. HarperCollins is owned by Rupert Murdoch... Simon and Schuster is owned by CBS, which is not actually that bad. And then Macmillan is the only one I couldn't find any dirt on. But so it becomes this way of thinking about how do you produce? We think about producing art, we think about writing, you know, as if it's this pure thing, but it exists in. A marketplace it exists in we exist in a moment where more than any time in the last hundred years the platforms of expression are all owned by some very unsavory people and does being published by something like penguin or rupert murdoch's harper collins does that somehow impact what it, that book means when it goes out into the world right if the owners if if you write a book of incredibly good liberal opinion but Rupert Murdoch is is publishing it and Rupert Murdoch is making money off of it does does that not have some kind of impact on what you're doing you know and it's a hard question i don't know i don't know the answer to it but having been someone who was completely kicked out of the club i can ask that question in a way that you know, someone who still had some hope of of doing this in that way couldn't.
0: I know exactly what you're talking about. And this this kind of, to call it a moral gray area, doesn't begin to describe no, it. No, not you at know, all. It, 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 you, want, you want to be a success, but mm-hmm. you don't want Rupert to profit from it. And this kind of aggregation of what used to be independent whatever's, right. uh, brew pubs, the brew pubs are all getting owned now by, by, uh, you know, the Imbev and uh, all of your favorite beers are now owned by some yeah. huge conglomerate somewhere. Yeah. There's nothing like the old, Oh, yeah, the brewer's in the back, man. He's, he's right. coming up with the new formula. Yeah. That's not happening. It's not happening in publishing. It's not happening. It it ruins sports. Yeah. It ruined the publishing industry. It ruined journalism. It's ruining everything. Okay, yeah. I, I'm finished. I'm finished. Getting. I'll get off my high horse here. Before we end this interview, I want you to talk about how the story works itself out, at least to the extent that you want to give anything away. Because Celie and Roseburn meet HRH. hmm and he turns out to have more powers than you might think he has. Right. Yeah. And they also eventually find Fern, and she has done something which is shocking to Celia. You want to talk a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah.
1: In the most abstract way, Absolutely. without giving the Absolutely. book away. Yeah. The They run into HRH and they discover what it means to really encounter someone past the cash horizon. They encounter Fern and they discover that she has had something of a religious conversion, which allows the book to go into a territory that I guess the best way to describe it is for 1,800 years, give or take, or 1,500 years, give or take, all art in the West was religious art, right? Pretty much. And then after a certain moment, nothing became more discredited than religious art. You know, if someone says to you, Oh, I've I've made a Christian album, you've everybody wants to run, you know, because we know what that means. It the book ends up being an attempt to try to do a religious book, partly because I was attracted to by how low that idea is now, like how totally without any merit. And then partly also as an attempt to get closer to an answer, and not a religious answer, but an, a, a sort of what gets us through this historical moment that we're in. And that's that's about as far on that as mm-hmm. I'll go.
0: There is something, though, that I, if I'm going to give too much away, I'll just edit sure. it out, but drinking the fairy knight's blood, and all I can think of was this is a sacrament, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, and we won't contextualize it because yeah. that, would, that would give too much away. Your description of Jesus as a really great guy from a hick town, Mm -hmm. I thought was just not just insightful and funny, but I am an atheist Mm -hmm. who loves Jesus because I think that Jesus was a great teacher, a beautiful human being and a political revolutionary who kicked the Roman empire in the butt. Mm -hmm. And that's what really brought him down. Right. And the fact that he pissed off the the religious establishment at this time, anytime, I get reinforced my ideas are, are, are verified mm-hmm. by another writer <laughs> that always makes me feel good yeah. I, I, I what is what is your spiritual or religious orientation?
1: basically an atheist yeah I mean yeah. you know my I was raised Catholic my father is a Muslim I don't have I don't get a lot in that department. That being said, I can totally get on board with a Jesus who is there is a very good writer named John Dominic Crossan, who has a theory that's been kind of discredited amongst other Christian scholars, but he has this idea of Jew, uh, of Jesus as a Jewish, as a peasant Jewish cynic and cynic with the capital C, like these philosophers who used to just sort of, you know, it tells you about the era because, the cynic philosophers were essentially homeless people who were revered as the sources of knowledge and insight. Anyway, John Dominic Crossan has a very interesting book that tries to put contextualized Jesus in that thing as this guy who's going around and can just sort of see through the hypocrisy of the society that I can get on board with, but the me, me rest, the, the rest of it, uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't get, I don't have it, you know.
0: Yeah. But, well, I'm with you. Yeah. <laughs> this is great. I, I, I've been talking with Jarrett Kobek. His first name is spelled J-A-R-E-T-T. His last name is K-O-B-E-K. The title of his book is "Only Americans Burn in Hell," and it's published by We Heard You Like Books. Yeah. Uh, Jared, it's great to meet you. Please come back. Uh, yeah. For thanks your, for having next me. Book.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me.
0: You've been listening to Author, Author, produced at the studios of All Classical KQAC-FM in Portland. My name is Ed Goldberg. You can find these programs at our website, allclassical.org slash author. Thank you for listening, and I'll be back soon.